Welcome to the Redeemer Podcast. For more information about Redeemer Church, visit makingmuchofjesus.org. We hope you enjoy the talk and invite you to visit us next Sunday at either our 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. service. Amen. Well, it's good to see you, and I ask you to please take your Bibles and go to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be uh, one around you somewhere, maybe on the floor, on the seat next to you. And, or you can go on your device to esv.org and then go to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Well, we're still buckled up with Solomon uh, riding his tour bus through life under the sun. And he's reminding us week after week that without God, life is a vapor. And that this life under the sun without God at the center, as we just think about living from here from point A to entering the world, to point B to leaving this world, money, possessions, wealth, fun, our cravings, the hard work. I mean, it's, it's all vanities, the word he used. And that word just means vapor. It means steam, like steam off of your cup of coffee this morning. It's there and then it's gone. And like last night, we had eggs for dinner. We had breakfast for dinner, eggs and bacon, and uh, had a fr- nice fried egg, and the steam was there, and I was watching it, and I thought of Ecclesiastes. Like, oh, there's the steam. Oh, it's gone. And my eggs are cold now. You know, I mean, eggs just, they, they don't stay hot very long. And that's what Solomon's showing us about life under the sun. There's an inherent, unavoidable frustration and difficulty in life on earth. It's inescapable. And people think they've escaped it, but what they've only done is they've distracted themselves from it. There's no escaping it. They can pretend like it's not there, but Solomon's reminding us in chapter 1 and chapter 2, as he went through his estate, his accomplishments, and even a song he wrote in chapter 3, that life barrels down at us. These seasons of life are unavoidable. He he took us through the vanity of work, the impossibility of avoiding the casket, And even how last week in chapter 5, how even when we walk into a Sunday morning church service, it's possible that we're careless and misguided and not even thinking about why we're actually here. And now, the remainder of chapter 5 and chapter 6, he wants us to think about the instability of work and wealth, how these things come and go, and that ultimately we should fear not, little flock. Well, let's begin reading in verse 8 of chapter 5. And since this is the word of King Jesus, if you're able, let's stand in honor of the reading of the word of Christ. In beginning in verse 8, the Spirit says, If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is the gain for a land in every way a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he's the father of a son. But now he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came. And shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. 
This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy in his heart. There is an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth and possessions and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity, havel, vapor, fleeting, and it's a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, he also has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and yet, and in darkness, its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. All the toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after when whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity." And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell the man what will be after him under the sun? Let's pray together. Holy Father, would you help us now as we listen to your word? Your word is often often like a, a pebble in our shoe, in our flesh. We, at times, we're irritated by your word because we're confronted in our flesh. We're confronted by our sin. So now, Lord, would your sword of the Spirit pierce through the thoughts and intentions of our heart. May we all be open, and convicted, and comforted by your revealed word. Help us now, King Jesus, by your Spirit, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You know, it's always nice when, when a piece of your childhood doesn't get lost in your own children and their childhood. You know, I think about my kids will never know what it's like on a Friday night to go down to Blockbuster and go, and go cruise the aisles and try to get something. They'll never know the frustration of waiting to use the only phone in the house. And if you mess up, rotating the numbers. You've got to start all over again. They won't know the simple joys of playing Duck Hunt on Nintendo. But there are some things 
that they haven't really changed at all. I mean, as far as I can tell, in the realm of board games, Connect Four hasn't made any advances in 25 years. It's, it's pretty much the same. Um, Monopoly, they got a bunch of different versions, but it's still as long as ever. Th- th- there's no Monopoly Express. You know, I mean, it's just, it is what it is. And l- lately in our family, we've started playing Jenga. Jenga, too, hasn't improved at all. Now they've got bigger blocks, I guess, for adults now. And all but it's still the same game. And it's still a lot of fun. And it's really, it's easy. And it's actually pretty fair, no matter how old you are. As a 31-year-old, I have no advantage over my 7-year-old. It's, well, you move the blocks. That's it. And eventually, the thing gets super wobbly, and it's going to go down. If it's your turn and the tower's super wobbly, there's really nothing you can do. You can keep poking around and trying to find that really loose one, but you got to go. There's no avoiding it. And it won't take long. You might find that one, and then if it's your spouse's turn, like, oh, oh, I got it. And then Natalie found another one, like, ugh. And then Ivy got a good one, like, oh, no. Like, I'm going to be the one that's going to make it fall down. But listen, no one gets depressed when the tower falls down. No one gets mad when it goes kaput. Oh, this dumb game, I'm out of here. Like, no, you knew it going in. That's what you were playing. You were, you were playing for the tension. You were having fun. You were anticipating the tower going over. No one, no one ever gets mad when the Jenga tower tumbles down. And what Solomon is showing us, especially here, but week after week, he's reminding us that life under the sun is just a tumbling tower. We can move blocks around. We can get a bigger house, we can get a nicer car, we can go to the gym more, we can take vitamins, I mean, all these kinds of things. We can make decisions, we can be wise, but eventually, you run out of time, and it's, it's just going to come crashing down. And it's not even your fault. Someone else moved to a different block, and now, oh no, now it's, now it's going faster than I thought it would. And especially this week, Solomon wants to remind us that wealth and work and money, it's just a mere vapor. So let's think about work. Look at verse 8 of chapter 5. If you see in a province, in this kingdom, in this realm, the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, look at what he says. Do not be amazed at the matter. For the high officials watch by higher, and there are yet higher ones over him. So here's what he says. Look, you see and people get mistreated. You've been mistreated by someone up the food chain at work. Don't Facebook about it, he says. Don't be amazed. Don't marvel like, oh, my gosh, I got mistreated. Oh, my goodness, people are being mistreated. I can't believe it. He says, no, believe it. Don't be shocked. We live in a sinful world, and we're all sinners, and we're all trying to work together. And Solomon says also, hey, someone's watching them. There's a higher official above them. And what does he mean by that? It can either be something comforting or something like, oh, man, that's even more, like, upsetting. Could mean this. Hey, don't be shocked that that there's mistreatment happening. That guy, he's watched by someone else, and he's making him do it. He's, he's telling him to mistreat these people. And then that guy who's above him, he's telling them to mistreat them. Corruption's coming all the way from the top, all the way to the bottom. So don't be shocked. Or it could be, I think it's probably both. I think there's also the positive to it. Hey, you're being mistreated? Don't worry. Someone's watching them. And if they don't do it, someone else is watching them. Because eventually, you, you, people can't bully people forever. O'Doyle doesn't rule forever. If that makes sense. Don't be amazed. Their penalty will come. One day they'll be found out. But look at what he says in verse 9. But this is a gain for a land in every way. So how does this province really benefit? A king, the high official, committed to cultivated fields. Now, it's sweet and it clicks when, when the king, the ruler, is committed to these cultivated, fruitful fields. Why? Well, in Israel, a cultivated field benefited 
more than just the owner of the field. It benefited everyone. It benefited everyone in society. The owners of the field, they're making money. The workers, they're getting their paycheck. And the poor. Because the poor were able to glean on the corners and the edges of the field. That's what's happening in the book of Ruth. When Ruth and Naomi, they're going through and they're, they're getting the edges of the field. They're working. It's not just hand, you know, just hand-me-outs or whatever. They're working. They're, they're gleaning from the sides. So this king that's committed to that principle of everyone benefiting, of everyone getting what they deserve and what they can, put in their work, and everyone should eat, Solomon says, that's beautiful. It's sweet, and it works. When there's justice, it is sweet. When there's injustice, it's horrible. That when people look out for them, their own interests, there's, when people look for the interest of others, there's human flourishing. But if we only care about ourselves, we end up hurting others. This is the principle for our lives. When we only care about ourselves, the paradox here in this sinful world is that when we care about ourselves, there's ripple effects. We end up hurting other people. Other people suffer from the consequences of seeking after ourselves. And some people will go to any expense to get theirs. This is why Solomon says, it is vanity to chase the checking account. And it's vanity to think that work will be easy. Look at verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with, with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is a vanity. Money can't satisfy. And he says this every single week. He repeats it every week because we don't believe it. And this is not just an American Western problem. This is a human problem all the way to the ancient Near East, all the way to Tomball, Texas. This is a human condition problem that we really still think money will answer all of our problems. But you, if you put all of your soul's weight on money, it won't last. It's steam. And supposedly John D. Rockefeller, one of the richest guys ever, American tycoon, he was asked, Rockefeller, how much money is enough? And he said, one more dollar. And this guy would be a modern-day billionaire. And he would say, one more dollar. But money's not evil. People twist the Bible to say that. Oh, money's evil. No. The Bible says the love of money is the root of, root of all evil. For everything created by God is good, 1 Timothy 4. The Bible says it's the love of money is the root of all evil. And Jesus, too, he shows us how, how slimy we'll get with money and how wicked we can become when money's involved. Look what Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke. No servant can serve two masters. He will either hate the one or love the other. And this is polarizing. Hate or love. He will be devoted to one or despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It's always amazing to me that Jesus says money. He could have said anything, anything to put in that slot. But he says money because money is the greatest idol in the world. And look how, how Luke continues. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things, and they praised him. No, they ridiculed him. Jesus is saying exactly what Solomon says. They would have praised Solomon. They probably know Ecclesiastes 5, but they don't praise Jesus. They ridicule him. And what does Jesus say to them? You are those, you Pharisees, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Wow. What men love, what men praise, and what men tweet about 
retweet about the most, and what's trending in this world is an abomination to God. We either serve the Lord or serve money. And think about it. If you, if you trace money where it goes, to serve money is really another way just to serve ourselves. We turn cash into our little cult members to serve our wants and to be sacrificed at the cash register, to be sacrificed on the altar of Amazon, to make the idol of self happy. And I never noticed before, if you see it here, the Pharisees, how are they described? Lovers of money. I never noticed that before. We always think of the Pharisees as the moral, self-righteous, legalistic, empty, religious folk. I never noticed Jesus, that the Gospel of Luke calls them the lovers of money. And they are lovers of money. That's why they ridicule him. They don't praise him. The wisdom that he says, the echo psalm, they ridicule him. Because they are the classic, hardworking, Bible belt, religious person. And they love their money and what their money could do for them. And it's an abomination in the sight of God. Well, why is it vanity to Solomon? Look at verse 11. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what, what, and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? So what is Solomon saying? As the great philosopher, notorious B.I.G. said, more money, more problems. More money, more problems. I mean, think about it. I can think about my life. Went from a, uh, our first house, nice little starter home, to the house we're in now. It's bigger. It's a lot more work. And we'll often say, man, don't you miss our smaller house? We could clean that thing in like two minutes. Not as much dust. Not as much stuff. Money can make things easier, but it often makes things more difficult. Bigger house, more work. More stuff, more broken stuff. More things to replace. More things to keep up with. More things to worry about. As money increases, often not always, but stress increases. I mean, think about the stories of people who've won the lottery. And you think sometimes in your heart, man, if I won the lottery, it'd be amazing. It would not be amazing. Now, now you would have tons of new best friends that you never knew you had before. <laughs> Athletes who make it big now have tons of people leeching off of them. This is why Solomon says in Proverbs 14, 20, the poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. People take advantage of rich people. So when, if you have friends back in college when you were dirt poor and you're still friends, those are real friends. If you have people around you just because of you, not what you can give them, not what you can benefit them with, they are your real friends. And look at verse 12. Solomon nails it even more. Verse 12. Sweet, 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 sweet is the sleep of a laborer whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Solomon's point is this. Ditch diggers sleep better than CFOs. Why? Manual labor makes you tired. Wears you out. You don't get anxiety over stacking inventory. I remember when I worked in a summer at this warehouse in downtown Houston, just moving boxes of these giant bolts and screws and and all of this heavy machinery, just moving and counting and organizing. I didn't go home and lay at bed at night and going, man, I hope I stacked those boxes right. <sighs> I'm exhausted. <laughs> but the higher-ups, that COO, he's stressed out of his mind. Who, do, who are we going to lay off? We're, we're, we're not profitable this quarter. What are we going to do? He can't sleep. Sweet is the sleep of the laborer. The full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. 
Sure. One guy had a combo number one from Taco Cabana, and the other guy had a Wagyu steak and a vintage cab. But who's sleeping peacefully and without pills? Sometimes the hourly worker and the laborers, they work so hard, they don't even have time to get into trouble. They're too tired. Remember the affluenza teen? 2013, a juvenile court convicted Ethan Crouch of intoxication and manslaughter and gave him 10 years of probation. At sentencing, his lawyers argued that he shouldn't be accountable for his actions because his wealthy parents never held him accountable, and they dubbed him with this new condition called affluenza. He's so affluent, it just messed up his life. And Solomon would say, yeah, you're definitely right. And it's vanity. Vanity, vanity. A grievous evil. Another grievous evil is that money often can leave quicker than it came. Look at verse 13. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. What's he saying? He makes it this analogy of this guy. He's got a stockpile of money, ready to invest it. Stocks, new business, and whatever. Solomon says, oh, but it goes in a bad venture. And he's got a kid. He lost it all. It's all gone. We've seen this over and over again in our culture. Bernie Madoff, just a few years back. And Ponzi scheme scandal. Companies and families invested their life savings with him, let, let him manage all of their money, and it was all swindling. Billions and billions and billions of dollars swindled away by this man. By Enron here in Houston. Some people lost everything. Life savings, their homes. And here in Houston, one of the greatest economic cities in the world, here we're in an oil industry downturn and people, and a lot of people at Redeemer, handfuls of folks, are losing their jobs. So what's Solomon hitting at? That it is a standard that under the sun that money and possessions will leave faster than when they came. Think about how long it takes you to make that paycheck. 80 hours. How fast does that paycheck go? But the world, Solomon tells us, because the world is convinced, the world's so convinced that fame and wealth and possessions and that that's the American life. That's the real life. I mean, the old Motown group, The Temptations, you know how they started? Just a group of friends singing in high school. And someone saw them and said, we can make money off of them. They'll be something. They become famous, and half of the group's, group's mem- group members' lives ended in tragedy. Drugs, suicide, murder, ruined marriages. The vanity of life ruined their lives. Life was easy until they got a lot of money. And think about all the child stars. How many of them ended up as well-adjusted functioning adults in society? Miley Cyrus, Macaulay Culkin, Lindsay Lohan, Gary Coleman. We can go on and on and on. Bart Simpson might be the best one. So here's what I mean. We could spend hours just going through all of them. Have you ever considered that one of God's great mercies in your life is that you aren't filthy rich and famous? I know some of us don't believe that. Like, man, it'd be so cool to be. It would not. It is one of God's great mercies in your life that you aren't filthy rich and famous. Because possessions, they're not hardwired to bring lasting, meaningful happiness. 
And Solomon's point that he keeps bringing us is find joy, find it, not in having more, but in what you have and what God has done, what Christ has done, that this is the gift from God. Look at verse 18. So now he says, behold, what I have seen to be good. I mean, he's been saying, this is a grievous evil, this is a grievous evil, this is a grievous evil. Now, here's what I've seen that's good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun. Not to avoid it and not to evade it, to find enjoyment in your, in your lot. The few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. And if God gives you all that stuff, great. Verse 19, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them, to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift from God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Here's what he's saying. Enjoy today. Enjoy what you're doing. Enjoy your lot. Enjoy your toil. This is not a surprise. God is not shocked. You have the job you have or the job you don't have. He knows. He's saying, this is your lot right now. Enjoy it. You can get that new to you car. That's fine. Fine if you can do it. Finances are light up. Great. Not going to be sinful. All that kind of stuff. Awesome. Go for it. But just remember, you're not going to find ultimate happiness in having seat warmers in Texas. That car's going to get old. Is your joy going to get old too? That new car, hey, if you can get it, sweet. But the value plummets when you drive it off the lot. So enjoy. Eat. Drink. Find enjoyment. Enjoy time with friends today. Enjoy the popcorn and the real Dr. Pepper with real sugar in it. Buy that plane ticket. Go see your friend. Go enjoy that concert. God is, these are all gifts from God. What Solomon's saying is, you can either be cranky about what you don't have, or you can be content and rejoice in what you do have. You can either be cranky about what you don't have, or you can be content and rejoice in what you do have. Rejoice today, for you don't know what tomorrow brings. Inverse on what Jesus says, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough anxieties for its own. Focus on today. So don't, don't focus on tomorrow. Focus on today. And look at verse 20. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So there is a joy from God that overrides all the vanities of life under the sun. You can worry, you can fret, you can be be anxious, you can be cranky, but here it says, no, God can give you a joy that overrides all of those things. Very similar to when Peter says, don't be anxious, for there's a peace that surpasses all understanding. There's a joy that we can have from God that overrides that I don't have this, and I don't have that, and I'm not married yet, and I thought I'd have more kids by now, and I thought this, and I thought my job. Now, God keeps, keeps us occupied with joy. If, if you haven't seen the movie Inside Out yet by Pixar, you should. That is a, just a wonderful movie. And it's just a master, a mastercraft movie, I think, in, in the human condition. It goes through the people's psyches and their minds. And, you know, they've got sadness and anger and, and fear and joy. And through some circumstances, joy leaves. She, she gets out of like mission control of this little girl's mind. And then everything kind of starts to go wrong. She gets more angry. She, gets, she doesn't listen to her parents anymore. She gets cranky. She, gets, she runs away you know, because joy left. Once joy left, it's like life got out of balance. 
then joy and sadness come back into it, then everything harmonizes once again. Because, and it's just so insightful into the human heart that God puts joy there. And now it overrides everything else in this world. Now Solomon gives another analogy in chapter 6 because we still don't believe him. He goes even further. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun. And now it's heavy on mankind. So he makes this guy up, this hypothetical guy, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honors. Hey, God gives it all to him. So he lacks nothing of all he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. And he says even further on verse 3, a man fathers a hundred kids, hypothetically, right? He's got a hundred kids, so many kids that live many years, and then down in verse 5, or I'm sorry, verse 6, he lived a thousand years twice over. So he's just speaking so exaggerated, so exaggerative, right? That's even a word. He's going so far going, man, he's got a hundred kids. He's lived 30 lifetimes. He's lived a thousand years twice over. He's got everything he could ever want, but God doesn't give him power to enjoy it. He got it all 30 times fold, but God didn't give him power to enjoy life. That you can have everything you've ever wanted. You could be Aladdin and have all, not just three, you could have all the wishes you've ever wanted and yet have nothing. You can have it all and be miserable. You can have the Ferrari, but what if you don't have the gas? This is what he's getting at. If God doesn't give you the power to enjoy it, it's vanity. You can have the 4K TV, but what if you don't have the power cord? Verse 3, look at verse 3. If a man fathers a hundred children, he lives many years, so that his days, if his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. Soul's not satisfied. God has designed the universe in such a way that only truly and properly can we enjoy his creation with him at the center. I mean, the, the matrix code of the universe is to be God at the center. Without him, without him at the center, Everything else in this world becomes idols. But with him at the center, everything else becomes gifts. With him at the center, everything's a gift. With him not at the center, everything becomes an idol. This is why people bow down to the sun. They worship the sun. Because without God at the center, we worship this powerful source. So people bow down to trees. All people bow down to the bottle and to things that can inject and smoke. Because everything else in this world gets perverted and becomes an idol, becomes, some, becomes something we worship, but with God at the center, everything properly enjoyed becomes a gift. Only God can give us the power to truly enjoy money, to truly enjoy sports and cars and steak and family and, and a beach house, and these things not consume us. Christian consumers, we buy things, we realize this is just a gift from God. But without Christ at the center, we think we're consuming this. No, no, it begins to consume us. It becomes the Lord over us. And then Solomon says something really drawing and really it brought me back when I was reading it this week. But it's so true, and we'll see why. Look at what he says in verse 3 again. 
in the middle, but his soul's not satisfied with life's good things. So this hypothetical guy he, he makes up, then he says, he has no burial, no proper burial, no one really comes, no one cares. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. Hmm. I mean, he got heavy real fast. A stillborn child's better off than this hypothetical guy. These are difficult words. I mean, heavy, especially, I know, if you've, many of Redeemer have experienced this. Solomon's not being insensitive. He's not being flippant. He's being very real with us. I actually think there's a lot of comfort tucked into these words, too. Why, why is that? Well, what does Solomon say about this hypothetical guy? He's lived life to the fullest, even more than we could imagine. 30 lifetimes, 100 kids. He's experienced it all. He's, he's had it all. And what does Solomon say? Yet he never had rest for his soul. He never experienced rest. He never experienced peace. He never found life. And look at verse 5. What does he say about the stillborn child? Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Yeah, the stillborn never had ice cream or ran or scraped his knee or had a tickle fight or got married. Yet, what does Solomon say? Yet they have rest with God. They found life. They have peace with God. They found true life under the sun. And this is why I think the smallest among us who suffer, they're with Jesus because they found rest. This whole section, Psalms, appealing to us to find life and what really matters under the sun. That the world looks at that hypothetical man Solomon made up and go, man, what an amazing life. And then our culture, we could look at the stillborn and go, man, they didn't get to experience life. And Solomon says, no, they didn't, but they have rest. They have peace. They found the divine life with God. This is why verse 12, he says, for who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which passes like a shadow. So with that analogy of the stillborn and all the things he's gone through, he's showing us, do you see what really matters in life? Do you see what matters in your vain life, your steam-like life, this disappearing act of life? Do you see what will be, at, be after the sun? Look at verse 12. For who can tell, man, what will be after him under the sun? So what will be, what will be after you under the sun? What's around the corner? What is there? And Jesus gives us the answer. I want you to turn in your Bibles as we close to Luke chapter 12. In Luke chapter 12, listen to what the Lord Jesus has to say about all these things that Solomon just went over from chapters 5 and 6. And Jesus, when he walked on the earth and, and taught, he said, someone greater than Solomon is here. And so he's amplifying what Solomon says to a thousandfold, showing us these deep meanings of what Solomon just said. Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. I think that's an odd thing to invite Jesus into, but whatever. But he said to him, man, who made me judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, I think he's now speaking to his disciples in the crowd, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. 
for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You should underline that in your Bible. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man, oh, just like the guy Solomon's talking about, produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns, build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. That sounds a lot like what Solomon said. Not really. Because look what the Lord says. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. Because he's been distracted by the abundance of his possessions. Your soul's required of you. The things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouses nor barns, yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, as adding an hour to your life, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. They're just there. I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom. And these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for this is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This day, Jesus says, Our soul is required of us, the true us. Take care, Jesus says, and be on guard. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Do we believe that for real? Do our lives reflect that for real? Are we aligned with him and and his ways? Do we follow his counsel for life under the sun? Life is not found in the abundance of possessions. Life's not found in adding this. Life's not found in adding that. So where is life found? When Christ, who is your life, appears, it will give you the unfading crown of glory. Am I with the one who died in the place of sinners? To forgive us from our sins and who rose again from the dead for our sins and to give us new life, and to give us the real treasure, him and his kingdom. Is that what you believe? 
Your soul is required of you this hour. Your eternity is at stake. If you are a Christian, fear not, he says. Your father, he will take care of you. He takes care of the birds. Every time I go to Kroger or H-E-B and I see all those nasty little birds in that parking lot, and they're having a field day out there. I'm like, how much people are dropping food in a parking lot? I don't think I've ever dropped food in a parking lot. Other than when I'm knocking food out of a car seat, maybe, or something like that. But there are, the, there are these birds having a feast. And God looks at those birds and says, I like those birds. I love those birds. I made those birds. How much more do I love you? How much more I'll take care of you? If those birds at H-E-B will get fed, so will you. Anxiety gets vaporized when you realize that life under the sun is just a vapor. You don't have to be worried about anything under the sun. That's what Jesus says, don't be worried. Why? Because it is his good pleasure. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom of God. He's giving you the kingdom. God is not begrudgingly giving you the kingdom, this eternal kingdom on the new earth. It says it is his good pleasure. He loves to do it, but we don't love to receive it. We want the temptations of Satan and not the kingdom of Christ. If Satan were to bring you before all the kingdoms of the world and say, bow down to me and I'll give you all of this, what would you do? We must resist all the temptations of Satan under the sun and look to the eternal kingdom. And it's his good pleasure to give it to us, the eternal kingdom of Christ who rose again from the dead and now raises us with him and takes us beyond the sun and into a new and everlasting life with him. This is why Jesus says, so seek the kingdom first and all these things will be added to you. Seek the kingdom first. Is that where your treasure is? Or do you find it hard to believe that that would even be worth it? A treasure in the heavens that does not faint, that does not fade, that does not grow weary. It's Jesus himself, the crucified one, the resurrected one, the reigning one, the returning one. So is your faith in him? Because if it's our father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom, how does he become our father? That seems very significant. If he only gives the kingdom to his children, how, do, how does he become our father? When Jesus becomes your savior, when Jesus becomes your brother, when Jesus becomes your friend, if you believe in him, this is why he says, my joy will be full in you. His joy, the joy of Christ will be now full in us. It's almost as like he's echoing Solomon that he will give us a joy that occupies and overrides and fills our hearts unconquerable joy with faith in Christ and Christ alone. Joy is still had when the Jenga tower of life falls under the sun because we know there's still more to come. But fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He may not give you this. He may not give you that. But He will give you the kingdom. And what do you want more? Do you want the kingdom or the things that moth and rust will destroy? Do you want the kingdom more than you want steam? Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Let's pray together.